Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Welcome online. My name's Dave, if we haven't met. So glad that you're here with us. If this is your first time, especially, uh, you're, in, you're in for a treat. Um, we'll explain why later. Uh, but we're kicking off a brand new sermon series. It's on the life of Abraham. And we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks going through the story of Abraham as found in the book of Genesis. Now, Abraham, even folks who aren't particularly religious have heard of Abraham. He's called the father of the faith. He's the father, um, uh, not just of, of the Christian faith, but the Jewish people consider him a towering figure, as do the Muslim people. So he's a towering figure. We're going to study and just look at his story um, and, and we actually even wrote a book. Well, I wrote, I wrote a book. I wrote a book. That feels weird and self-promoting. I'm sorry about that. But it's out there. And uh, we wrote a book because we want to travel through this story together. And I want to just take uh, this morning to talk about why I think that this is so important and what it's done in me and why it's been so important to me. Um, because, again, the whole point of this is, like, this has impacted me. And um, it's really changed and helped me. And I want to kind of explain why. And hopefully that will help help all of us as we gather and go through this together. So yesterday morning, I want to explain this. <clears throat> I want to use M&Ms to talk about this. These are my M&Ms. <laughs> go ahead and try to take food from me. Go ahead. Uh, so yesterday morning, uh, I turned to my teenage son. He got up, you know, 10, because he's a junior in high school, and that's early for him. And uh, so he gets up in the morning. I say, hey, I need your help. And he's like, what, with what? I go, we, I need to count out 936 M&Ms and put them in a mason jar. He's like, why? I said, do not question me. I'm your father. Do what I say. That's great parenting advice for teenagers. <laughs> Works all the time. Uh, and so he, we, we did it, and we were just talking about it. And I want to explain what 936 um, M&Ms represent. These represent the number of weeks that I had with my children when they were born until they would graduate from high school. This is them. This is my son when he's a baby. My daughter, it was, we were taking her home from the hospital just so many years ago. This is them uh, now, so they're not so little. That's, um, he's not two, that's 11th grade. He just doesn't have, <laughs> like your son's really stupid. Uh, no. Um, so this is, that's how many I had when they were babies. And this is how many I have with my son now. 104. 104 weeks left before he graduates from high school, ostensibly to, to go and leave for college. 100, I mean, this is not that many. Like, I could, I could eat these after the service. <laughs> Let's be honest. I could eat these after the service. The point is, um, this is not that many. And so I, I took these out, and I said to my son, I don't have that many weeks left with you. I don't. And so I want to make every M&M count. I want to make every week count. I want to have time together. I want to make sure we're intentional about this. Because you're going to be launched away from this. My role as your dad's going to change. I used to be an air traffic controller when you were a baby. Uh, and I controlled everything. Who you saw, what you ate, where your friends were. And now I move into a coach. A coach mode. I, I can't participate in the game. You play it and I come back and I try to train. And then um, we discuss it. Um, but I, if I, I can't go out on the court with you. You're... You're out there, and you're about, to, you're about to leave. You're about to launch. That's, that's hard stuff. And so as he launches, as he prepares to launch in the next couple of years, the big question on my dad heart is the same question that I think a lot of parents have, that maybe you guys have, is, is how can I help my son be successful? And I don't mean successful like in a worldly sense, like how can he make a lot of money or be in, get into a good college. I'm talking about 
what we define as success, both here and that the Bible defines. And those are these three loves that we talk about all the time. This is what our church is built around. And these are the things that are upheld in Scripture as the kind of the measures of what it means to be successful, to be, to live life well, to love God, to love your neighbor, and to love one another. And so these things, what does that look like? How can I do that? How can I do that better? How can I set him up for success? How can I help him? Now, the problem with this is, is not that it's not clear. Love God, love your neighbor, and love one another. That, those, are, those are clear. The problem that I have, and as my son and my daughter, uh, two years after that, begin to to get into this age where they're going to be launched, the question is like, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> now, for me, love your neighbor and love one another is actually a little bit easier to understand. I can access it. I know what it means to love your neighbor and love one another. And here, it's pretty easy. It's Christian community. Do you have Christian friends? Are you in a life group? Do you share life? Are you known? Are you valued by different people? Do you have Christians speaking into your life that you're really close to? That's the love one another part. That's That's... That's kind of easy to understand. It's kind of measurable. Like, are, do you have Christian community? It's kind of binary, either yes or no. It, it's kind of, it makes sense. And so my son and my daughter both kind of understand what this means, uh, building relationships with other Christians, coming to youth group, having mentor relationships in both JHM and HSM ministries. What does that mean? And so they know what that means to love one another. And then to love your neighbor, uh, this church does pretty darn well. I mean, we have beautiful day every year where we go out and we serve our community. We have beautiful day 360. We have legacy projects. We have service projects. We have lots of things. And, and what it means to live your life out into the world, out into the Bay Area, and make an impact in the city. And not just the city and the globe. There's all sorts of stuff that the global compassion folks go. There's mission trips. So my children kind of understand that. I kind of understand that. The love your neighbor, it's measurable, right? It's actionable. It, it, it makes sense. But man, that love God, that's weird. Because the word love is like strange. It's like, how do you measure if you love God more, there's no Grinch meter. Your heart's three sizes bigger for God. You know, there's no way to measure. And, and the word love is super weird. Like, it's really mushy as a word. Like, I love tacos and I love my mom. It's like, what? That's weird. Those should be different words. Um, it's just strange, right? So how do you measure if you love God? How how can you, is there a pragmatic test that you and I can take to ensure that we love God more? Is it about emotions? Is it about my feelings? How do you help your kids love God if, if I don't even have an actionable definition? Like, like is it, it's, it's too vague. And so I'm like, son, love God. Uh, okay, dad. Like, what's that mean? Like, it's strange. So in the middle of this, this is my complex question. So we're, we're going to turn to scriptures. And of course, um, this is upheld in Scripture that loving God is critically important. I mean, this is the center part of, of so many texts in the Bible. Like in Deuteronomy, there's this moment where Moses tells the people, this is the most important thing. And it's in Deuteronomy 6.5, and it's called the Shema. Say Shema. Shema. It's fun to say. Say Shema. Shema. It's just fun. So here's the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy 6, and you've probably seen this. It says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And of course, later on in the Gospels, Jesus is asked the same question. Now this, this Shema in Deuteronomy 6 would become like a national anthem. It would become as ubiquitous as the Pledge of Allegiance is in the United States. It was part of their culture. It was part, they would say it in the morning and in the evening 
Um, it, when they got up, when they laid down, this was a critical part of what it meant to be Jewish. This, this Shema, they would say it. And then later on, Jesus is asked multiple times, and we have three different accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of times when Jesus is asked, hey, what's the most important thing out of all the law and all the prophets of all the Old Testament? What's the most important thing for us to keep in the center in our heart and in our minds? And Jesus, in Matthew 22, says this. Jesus replied, he reshmas it, right? He, he says, he, he re-ups the Shema and says, this is what it means. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he does a little tweak, because Jesus is allowed to do that, because he's God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he says. Love your, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is like, he's, he's saying that he's ratifying the Shema as, as central. In Luke 10, it's, it's a similar situation. Uh, a guy comes up to Jesus, he's a teacher of the law, and he asks Jesus the exact same question. And it's right there in Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must we do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus asked. Well, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. I can almost imagine Jesus going, you have chosen wisely. Yeah, it's like, it's a reference for six of you. All right, did anybody, anybody, can I, can I anybody? Any, yep, yep, boom, boom, boom. All right, good. We're tracking, we're tracking. All right. And then in Mark 12, the rest of you are like, what is going on? This guy's weird. All right, Mark 12. Same thing, same situation. You guys are familiar with this. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is Jesus talking. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Okay, so I made a handy-dandy graph, like, like love God with uh, uh, Deuteronomy says heart, soul, and strength. Matthew says heart, soul, mind. The other, the other two have all four. And so, like what? But so, okay, so I know it's central, Jesus. I get it. It's clear this is the most important thing. But it's still like, like what, what does it mean? What, what, what does heart, soul, mind, and strength mean? Are they interrelated? Are they different? Um, Am I supposed to do a word study and determine exactly what my heart is and how my heart is different from my mind? Is different. What's my soul? Like, what is, what is, what is that even? Is it like Patrick Swayze in Ghost? Kind of like pass through walls and then kiss to me more? I don't know. And then strength, like, am I supposed to like bench press for Jesus? This makes, I don't understand. Like, I don't, it's, it's hard, right? And as you study into this, even, I mean, even if I said to my son, hey, son, daughter, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I, again, not, it's, it's true, it's real, but I don't know how to act. How do you measure that? Like, what, what, what do I do? And so, as you study this, what becomes really apparent is these words, heart, soul, mind, and strength, are not meant for Jesus to say, there's four aspects of your personhood, and love God with each four. Basically, Jesus is saying, hey, people, everything you have, all of it, all of you, love God with all of it. All, the totality of your personhood, of what it means to be a human. Love God with that. Okay, so that's helpful, but still, I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of the things that's both frustrating and beautiful about being a human. God apparently trusts us way more than I think he should. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I wish my kids came with, in terms of what it means to love God, I wish I had an Ikea manual. Like, that would be helpful. Like step-by-step -step instructions, extra dowel rods, in case I break one. 
this is what I want. I want an Ikea manual. I want step, I want my children to have been born with a little zip tag, with a little, with a little plastic bag with instructions for each child. That would have been great. God, if you could have provided that, that would have been awesome. But you and I both know that's not the way that God works. That's not, that's not even what we're given. We're not given step-by-step instructions on how to build our lives to love God better. I wish sometimes that we were, but that's not how it works. I also sometimes wish, especially after this past year, that I had a map. Hey, children, here's where to go. Here's where not to go. Here's what to avoid. This area, danger, danger, go over here. But we're not given a map. And if 2020 taught me anything, it's that the map idea, we don't have a map. Things I thought, they're not, they changed in a heartbeat, right? Things that I used to think, were, there is no map. I can't predict the future. I don't know where I'm going, let alone my children. So if I don't know where they're going, how can I tell them where to, I'm not given a map. I wish God gave me a map. I wish there were, but there's not. And nobody knows. And I know this full well because I've got my fantasy football draft tomorrow and it's gonna be a nightmare. Anybody, you know, anybody here play fantasy football? You know, you're like, I know exactly what's going to happen. It never works. I've been last in my league every year, and I study more than all the other fools. And it's worthless because you don't know. You can't predict. There's no map. There's no map. There's no map. There's no map. So in the middle of this, man, there's no IKEA guide. There's no map. I'm frustrated. One of my mentors said to me, look, Dave, you can't give your kids a map, but you can't give them a compass. And that's what started me on this idea as I studied the scriptures, that the scriptures are actually, they're not an Ikea guide as much as we want them to be, and they're not a map. They're a field guide. The scriptures are a field guide. They say, hey, in this world, you're going to encounter some stuff. Here's some helpful stuff. Apply it to your situation as needed. Here's some knots. This is really important. When you go out in the field, you're going to need this knot. Are these nautical knots? I don't know. But the point is, they're for binding two things together, and you're probably going to need this. This is a helpful knot. Or maybe this. You're going to encounter these tracks. Some of these animal tracks are benign. Some of them, you look at it, oh, no, that's a hippopotamus. Where am I? I should probably get out of here. <laughs> if you see hippopotamus tracks, I would say just in general, just leave. Um, it's bad, bad news. So here's some general, a field guide is like a way of, of saying, here's some general situational advice. Apply it as needed. But you best know for sure what page this stuff is on. Because if you're going to eat some berries in the wild, you better know what page to say, hey, eat these berries, don't eat these berries. Because otherwise you can die. A field guide's a general, practical way of saying, in the wild, in the confusing, changing experiences of life, here's some ideas. And use these as needed. But this requires skillful reading. It requires us to be skilled and patient readers. And the Bible is a book that requires of us skilled and patient reading. Enter Abraham. His story, the stories in the Bible are given to us by God himself, revealed by God himself, in order to, uh, for us to interact with them. And in Abraham's life, we see some ups and downs, ways he lives life with God successfully and ways he blows it entirely. And in that process, as careful readers, we are supposed to extract, like a field guide, some general principles about what it means to love 
God, of what it means to do life with God. Sometimes Abraham succeeds, and those are models of inspiration. Sometimes he fails miserably, and those are warning signs. But in all things, this is a field guide. About two years ago, I entered into a master's program for theology at Western Seminary. And this is my professor, Gary Brashears. And as he walked us through Genesis, as he walked us through the life of Abraham, he basically gave us in this cohort, this, this, there's 23 of us and we're all there together with him. He basically took us through this, 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 these chapters in Genesis. And as I was going through this, I realized this is a field guide. And I wrote down the notes that there was, there's lessons from Abraham's life. And I thought to myself, I... I got it. This, this is it. This is what I have been looking for. This is the practical, measurable, pragmatic advice about what the diagnostic test from the life of Abraham to help me see if I am growing in how I am loving God. And I can take this and give it to my kids. I, we can talk about this as a family. This is a four-part diagnostic to help me see from the life of Abraham what it means to love God. In fact, Abraham helps us see what it means to love God, to do life with God. Now, parenthetically, here's a secret. This book, this series is called Abraham. And so you think, oh, we're going to learn about Abraham. We won't. We learn about God. Shh, don't tell anyone. Because in the middle of this, what we're going to learn is we're going to learn about God and what it means to do life with God. So we're going to focus for the next 10 weeks we're, we're, we're going to focus on the next 10 weeks on four moments in Abraham's life. And those four moments have four key lessons. And, and we're even going to stay, take a break right in the middle and do Beautiful Day. We're going to do Beautiful Day. We're actually going to practice one of the lessons. We're going to go out there. It's like a practicum. It's like a lab in chemistry. We're going to go out and do it. You will be graded. There will be a test. No. Um, it's just a fun little practicum. We're going to go. And so these four moments are the call, the child, the city, and the test. In each one of these four moments, these are the high points in the narrative, the huge points in the story of Abraham, and those four are actually going to tie to four key lessons. I'm going to go through them, and as I go through them, I think you're going to see, wow, that really is a helpful diagnostic, a helpful way to describe what it means to love God, and for me to do interior tests to see how I'm doing based upon the life of Abraham. So, the first one is called the call of Abraham. It's there in Genesis chapter 12. And in this, Abraham is living in this place called Ur. Ur of the Chaldeans. It's right outside of Cleveland. I'm joking, it's not. It's in Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia. And he's living up there in this. This is a very pagan area with lots of different foreign gods. And this is very bad news because his family is from the lineage of, of, of Noah. Noah, who had been rescued by Yahweh, the creator God, in the middle of this terrible, terrible, destructive time in human history. Noah was righteous, and so God puts him on and his family on the ark, and they have knowledge. They are the lineage of those who know about Yahweh, the creator God. And something terrible has happened. They have stopped in the middle of this land, which worships all sorts of other gods. Ur of the Chaldeans was a center of lunar worship, and Abraham's dad starts naming his kids after lunar deities. Which is, a, it's like being a Chicago Bears fan, moving to Green Bay, and naming your kids Favre and Rogers. It's just all bad. 
It's just terrible, terrible, terrible news. Again, four of you got that reference. I'm sorry. I don't have anything but sports metaphors. That's it. That's all I got is football season soon, and I'm inundated. So I have got to study to lose my fantasy league. So anyway, um, the point is that they have fallen into lunar worship. And this is terrible. The, fam- the last family on earth that had any knowledge of Yahweh, the creator God, has lost its way. They are worshiping other gods. And on top of that, Abraham's wife is barren. She cannot have children. This is a dead end. And so her barrenness is a metaphor for the dead end of this family line. There is no hope to create a future. They're at a dead end. But with God, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes with God, dead ends aren't that dead. Because God. And so God actually intervenes in human history, breaks through not only into history, but into Abraham's history, and actually introduces himself to Abraham. This is called the call of Abraham. Some people call this, this passage, Genesis 12, the grand central station of the entire Bible. Some people even say that this, be, this, 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 this moment in Genesis 12 is actually just the great commission and the great commandment just rewritten in different words. And in this moment it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. In the King James, they translate it, get thee out. I love that. I just, that's fun. Anyway, uh, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And in this moment, we see something really fascinating. In this land, this foreign land, Baal was the Canaanite god. They worshiped Baal there. And when you entered into a foreign land, you built an altar. And if you built an altar, you built an altar to the foreign god as a form of respect because you don't want to get killed by the foreign gods or by the foreign people. You worship their gods. And so you would expect when Abraham goes to the land of Baal, if he's going to make an altar, who is he going to make an offering to? You would expect Baal, but he does not. He makes an offering to Yahweh, the creator God. He makes an offering to this God. And so in the middle of this, I start realizing that you and I live in a land filled with foreign gods. There are all sorts of gods and all sorts of things out here that clamor for our attention. They might not have names like Baal or Milka or Sin, but they have names like money, career, advancement, comfort, success, property, education, all sorts of fun gods that we have in the Bay Area that are different than other gods in other regions. And they call for our attention and they call for our hearts. And so in the middle of this, here's what's exceptional. Abraham, and this is the first lesson, he is loyal to this Yahweh, even if it costs him, even in the land of Baal. And I realize I want to be the kind of person who my loyalty and allegiances allegiances and my commitments are to Yahweh and Yahweh alone above any other. I want to be firm in that. I don't want to drift into accidental idolatry. I don't want to have my heart divided. I want to be a person who is loyal and committed and has my allegiance to Yahweh, to Jesus above all else, even if it costs me, even in the land of foreign idols. That's the first lesson. And then right after that, we see another lesson. There's the promise of Abraham by God to give him a child. And in this, this is in Genesis 12. God 
comes to Abraham and says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then God says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who, who I, and whoever you curse, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is a promise that somehow through this child that Abraham will have, even though his wife is barren, that this will be a blessing not just to him, but to all the nations on the earth. And then God says, I want you to go and leave. And then it says that Abraham went. He went. Now, this is terrible news. This is terrible because God shows up to Abraham and says, I want you to leave where I want you to move. And what's the very next question that any reasonable human would ask? If God showed up to you or I in the middle of the night, just showed up and said, I want you to move. What's the very next question? Not why. Mm, Yes, maybe why. I think there's a bigger question. Where? Where am I going? Now, why do we want to know where? Because what if God wants us to go somewhere we don't want to go? We want to reserve the right to have veto power. Right? This is what we do as humans. We want control of our life. This is what we want. And so if God said, I want you to move, you're like, yes, okay, fine. My life is yours. Where? Bakersfield. No. 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 Fresno. Fres, yes. No. Nope. Nope. Not going there. I want to retain veto power. Abraham moves and trusts God even if he doesn't have all the details. And this is the second lesson. We must trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Because his ways are higher than ours. The very first sin in the Garden of Eden is people saying to God, I'll make the rules, thank you very much. My decisions, my ideas of what is right and what is wrong, that's what will be highest, not yours. That's the original sin in the Garden of Eden. And this is a recapitulation and undoing of that. It's saying, God, your ways are higher. I'll trust you. My ways, my thinking must be submitted to you. So this is the second one. We trust God even if it doesn't make sense. And let me be honest. There are a lot of things that we just don't, that don't seem to make sense. God asks us to do them. And it's very difficult to give control of our lives over to God unless we trust him. The third thing is the city. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of you are familiar with it. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah has fallen into great evil. It has become wicked. And so Abraham is t- is, 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 has his tents above the city. So we can look down. He can see Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot is living in the city. And he's there. And all of a sudden, God himself shows up with two traveling companions Somebody said they're bodyguards. I don't know if God needs bodyguards, but he does have some folks with him. And so he shows up, and this is what God says. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing what is right and what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Some fascinating things here. Number one, outcries against injustice and oppression reach God's ears. He hears them. Not only that, he comes down to get involved. This is incredibly good news. That God hears outcries of injustice and oppression. And then God gets involved. But secondly, and this is the incredible thing about it. God commends Abraham and says, all the nations will be blessed because... He has taught his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And those words right and just are tied together. They're the Hebrew words siddakah and mishpat. And we're going to spend several chapters on these two words. They're beautiful words. They're always put together. They're called hendias. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter is good. Jelly is good. You put them together. Peanut butter and jelly. They're just better. Justice and righteousness. And what God is saying is, in a world filled with oppression and injustice, my people will reflect my ethical character, and in doing so will bring about goodness in this world. And that is one of the ways they will bless the world, by being people who are just and right. So the third lesson of Abraham is be people who seek justice. We love what's right, we do what's right, and we set things right. There's all sorts of definitions out there floating around around this word justice. It's kind of a, a trigger word, but we're going to study what the Bible says about it. And it makes real demands on us. We have to be people who reflect God's ethical qualities. And this past year was a year filled with outcries. Against injustice, even now, they continue on. Will we listen? And more importantly, what's my role in that? Because sometimes I get overwhelmed by it. It's just too much. I don't know how to stop some of this stuff. I don't know what to do. I feel powerless. And so in the middle of this, God is inviting me to love what's right, to do what's right, and to help set things right. And then the final story in Abraham is one of the most famous In my research, you saw that artists, painters, sculptors, they like this moment probably more than any other story in the entire Bible. It's called the test. Sometimes it's called the sacrifice of Isaac. It's when God actually comes to Abraham and says, you have a son, Isaac. He has been born. I want you to take him on a mountain and kill him to sacrifice him to me. This is sometimes called the binding. The Jewish people call it the binding, or in Hebrew, the achkeda. And this moment is a terrible moment. In this moment, you see God asking Abraham to kill his son. The very son that God himself promised Abraham. The very son that God said would be his progeny, his lineage, his family. The very son through whom God would say he would bless the entire world. And in Genesis 22, we see this story. Abraham... It says, took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
and the two of them went on together. This is a terrible story. It's horrific. And in the middle of this, Abraham's world falls completely apart. Not only does the God who he thought promised him a child go back on that promise, but the very character of God is now in question. In the ancient world, child sacrifice was common. Abraham must have thought, I thought you were different, God. I thought, Yahweh, you were different. I thought you had a, a, a moral character. I thought you weren't evil or cruel or capricious, but I see now perhaps you're just like all the other gods. That could have been what Abraham thought, but he refused. When life fell apart, and friends, life will always fall apart at some point. I wish that weren't true. I wish I could give everyone in here a pass and just make life easy and up into the right, filled with health and laughter and joy all the days of your life. I really do. But you and I know that's not the way life works. And when life falls apart, Abraham somehow manages to trust that God is still good. This is the final lesson, that we expect God to be good even when life falls apart. Or should I say especially when life falls apart. These are the lessons from the life of Abraham. And for me, they remind me of Jesus. You see, if you look at these four, these four lessons, Jesus also shows us something. These lessons point to Jesus. Was Jesus loyal to his father above all other gods? Did he refuse to worship any other gods? Any other thing? Did Jesus trust his father, even when it didn't make sense? You remember that moment in the garden? If there's any other way, Lord, Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, there's any other way for me to not have to die and be killed and tortured, but not my will, but yours. Did Jesus put things right, love what's right, and set things right? Boy, howdy. <laughs> the Gospels are filled with him doing works of incredible justice, modeling it for us. And then when life falls apart, does Jesus trust his Father? Yes, he does. The provision of God. In fact, Jesus is actually our provision. Because years later, after Abraham would walk up a mountain, another son would walk up that same mountain with wood on his back. And that son would do it willingly too. And that son was Jesus. And he is the lamb that the Lord provided. So Jesus does perfectly what Abraham did imperfectly. But Abraham shows us through his life and through his stories. In the very beginning part of the Bible. In the very opening chapter of the Bible. He shows us what life with God is like. So we have a couple things to help you with this. We have a book that's out there. Um, you can buy a book. There's also a digital book if you want to read it on your iPad, if you're a digital book person, and an audio book, too. We're, the recommended donation for this is five bucks, but if you don't have the money or can't, that's totally fine. We also have the physical copies of the book. Those, the recommended donation is $10, but if you don't have it, that's totally fine. If you can give a little extra for helping other people, that would be really cool. But we've got the physical books, and you can just scan this QR code, and you can spend 10 bucks for the, for the book. And you get all the digital resources, too. The audiobook actually, is a Spotify playlist and an iTunes playlist. It's hidden, but you guys can get it. And um, it was actually an interesting fact. It was actually recorded in the very same studio in Oakland that Destiny's Child recorded their 1998 hit 
album Destiny's Child. So me and Beyonce, we're in the same place. Say my name, say my name. That was me. So that's the answer to the trivia question. What do Dave Tish and Beyonce have in common? There it is. Boom. Besides being incredible vocalists, both. <clears throat> okay, so the point. Let's go back to this four. This has been a mantra and a diagnostic in my heart for the last 18 months. And I went to Steve on February of 2020, if you can imagine. Remember February 2020? <laughs> what didn't we know? It was nuts. It was crazy. We're so innocent then, you know? It's just like, so naive. Um, I said, hey, what do you think? And he's like, let's, let's try to do this. And for the past 18 months, this has been a diagnostic in my own heart, my own life. God, is there a place I'm not loyal to you? Is there something that has usurped you in terms of first place in my heart? God, is there a place I'm not trusting you? Here's how I know when I'm not trusting. I'm afraid. Fear is my indicator, my dashboard light, that something's off when I'm afraid. Lord, in a world of injustice, am I listening carefully? Do I hear the outcry like you hear the outcry? And am I gonna, can I do something? Can I partner with you to do something, to put things right, to love what's right, and to set things right? Lord, is life falling apart for someone I love? Hasn't fallen apart for me, but is there someone whose life is falling apart? And can I remind them that though it doesn't make any sense, and though I don't possibly, can't possibly understand or predict how God could put this brokenness back together, can I speak that you are good and that you somehow can put even the most broken things back together? And this diagnostic has helped me, and maybe even right now, as you think and reflect on this, one of these lessons God is pushing in you. Maybe he's inviting you into this. Maybe there's an opportunity for you in one of these four. Or maybe it's all four. And that'd be awesome too. But as we enter into this time, we're going to worship now. I'd just like to remind you that this is not a checklist for good Christians. It looks like that, but really what it is. Because this book is not about Abraham. This series is not about Abraham. It's about God. Why are we loyal to God? Because he was loyal first. Loyal even to the point where he sent his own son to die. That's how loyal. Why do we trust God? Because he's proven himself again and again and again that his love doesn't stop, it doesn't run out, and it doesn't fail. Why do we seek justice? Why do we do what's right? Because God does, and his justice never ends. And why do we expect God to be good? Because he is, as proven by the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, among dozens of other reasons. Do you see? This is just us responding. Because God's been doing this the whole time. So as we enter into this time of worship, as the worship band comes and we sing these final songs, let's just bow our head and let's, maybe one of these four resonates with you. And maybe you can do, start doing some work now with God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the model of Abraham who did these things very imperfectly, but yet still did them.
he showed us what life with you can look like. And Jesus, we know sometimes these are hard and these are difficult things to do when we fail and we mess up, but would you grow us as a church to be loyal to you above all because you are loyal to us above all? Would you teach us and show us how to be people who trust you even when it doesn't make sense? Can you show us how to be people of justice and righteousness so that we can live that out? We can be people of integrity as you are a God of integrity. And when life falls apart, and it will fall apart, can you help us be people who speak the truth to one another? That though we do not understand what is happening and though it seems as though the universe itself is being torn into, that God, somehow you will bring good out of this. You can bring life even when there is death because that is who you are. Will you help forge us to be that kind of community? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.